Well, good morning. We're going to dive into two passages of Scripture, one from the Old Testament, one from the New Testament this morning. Uh, first is from Jeremiah chapter 2, just one verse, and then we're going to read 11 verses from Colossians chapter 3. Let's do this together. Uh, Jeremiah 2.13. God is speaking. He says, My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and they have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. Colossians 3, 1 through 11. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Lord God, we have just read your word together, and now we ask that you would give us understanding. And far beyond understanding, for that's not the hard part. Give us the will to follow your instructions. Thank you for allowing us to gather here this morning. Thank you for receiving praise and worship from us. Thank you for working in our lives for bringing the Savior into this world and bringing the influence of your Holy Spirit through Jesus directly to us so that we can know you, understand your word, live out the gospel, enjoy peace and harmony with God and spread peace and harmony with each other. Lord, we recognize we don't live in a perfect world and we are not perfect people but we desire to see your perfect ways and your perfect work mature in us. So we offer this time to you. And we ask that as we are here together meditating on truth and asking what it means for us to live it out, that little by little, you'll change my heart and my mind, our hearts and our minds, and by changing us, you make the world a little bit more the place that you want it to be. Thank you that Christ has come and has already conquered for us and, and that he has already won the battle. And now we are, we are living out the, the final aspects of, of his peace and his kingdom coming into play in this world. We know that you have a plan and we want to submit to your plan and to your timing. Help us. And forgive us in those times when we want to run ahead of you 
or when we want to do it our own way, or when we look for shortcuts. Thank you for forgiving our sins and for making us whole in Jesus and for loving us even when we mess up and for picking us up and putting us on the pathway again. Thank you for everybody in this room who's here with us. Together we are strugglers on that pathway. We are, we are people who are seeking to be more like Jesus and we are people who are seeking not only to know him but little by little to share this experience with those that we love and care about and work with and live nearby in the right time in the right way. Give us opportunities to bear witness to the changes you're making in our lives and to the joy that you bring. May those folks that we love and know and have prayed for come to know you this year. We pray this in Jesus' mighty name. On June 11, 2002, a Fox television show introduced a concept that quickly became frequently used as part of our American lexicon. On that day, Fox launched a contest known as American Idol, right? You're familiar with it? How many of you have watched at least one episode of American Idol? There are a few diehards that have never. I'll tell you, David Cote is one of those who will never watch it. He hates it. He, he, he would rather do live music than watch other people. Uh, begin to take their initial steps. But the rest of us actually got hooked by it as an American culture. Uh, TV executives have called this the most impactful show in the history of television. Uh, fashioned after a British contest called Pop Idol, American Idol is a singing contest that seeks to discover hidden talents from ordinary corners of life. And for eight consecutive years, from 2003 to 2011, either the performance show or the later results show each week of American Idol was the number one ranked TV show in terms of U.S. television ratings. Now, the truth is, some of the winners of American Idol went on to become successful in selling songs and albums. Two of the most successful have been young women, Kelly Clarkson, who won the very first year, and Carrie Underwood. But some of the other winners, despite the promise of the name American Idol, have been quickly forgotten. Think about it. Where is Taylor Hicks today? <laughs> Who is Philip Phillips? Any idea? Well, at one point, they, they were winners of the American Idol. This morning, in the third week of this Living the Gospel series, we're going to leapfrog from this concept of American Idols to talk about uh, the third part of this living out the gospel process. Uh, so far, in the, in the past couple of weeks, we've looked at two key words that are part of the context of living out the gospel. Uh, we talked about the city, and, and we looked at Jeremiah 29, where the children of Israel are going into exile in Babylon, and God tells them, don't just uh, retreat into your own lonely world and withdraw from society, but rather, go into the city Love the city that you're in. Pray for its success. Pray for its prosperity. Pray for its peace. And in doing so, you too will be blessed. And so there wasn't an either-or between being absorbed by the culture and endorsing everything about it or completely withdrawing from the culture. The challenge was to enter the culture and still preserve their identity and their faithful distinctiveness. Remember that? Then last week, we talked about a second word, heart. 
And how do we capture the heart of the Father? We looked at that amazing parable, I think the greatest story that Jesus ever told, in the, in the prodigal son parable. But we looked at it from a different lens this time. We looked at it from the Father's eyes and from the Father's angle. And we realized that the two sons, each were completely lost at one point or another in the story. The first son ran away, and in trying to only answer to himself, he was running away from the father, but finally returned. The second son, though, in the midst of his obsession with obedience, slaves away, and yet he doesn't understand the, the father at all. And so when the father throws this, this wild party as the first son comes home, he has to go out and try to rescue the second son who's bitter with his self-righteousness and doesn't want to come in and celebrate. Today we're going to look at a third concept, and it has to do with idolatry, the idols that sometimes are in our lives. Now, this word prompts a question for this week. Is idolatry simply an old world problem, or is it still our problem today? You know why we have to confront that, that question or ask that question? Most people in our world, even Christians, think that idolatry is something that only existed in the Old Testament context and that we don't deal with a problem like that today. That was in the old world where, where people set up idols on altars and they bowed down before images of stone or wood or something else. I would like to posit to you an opposite observation that the problem of idolatry today is more rampant and more dangerous in our time than it was in the days of wood and stone because we don't think we have a problem and because the enemy of living out the gospel is very, very deceptive in the way that he uses idols in our lives to keep us from being the people God wants us to become or for living out the gospel in ways that make it effective in our world today. Does that make sense to you? Let me show you the backdrop for this and, and kind of walk you through uh, where we're going here. In order to evaluate whether idolatry still exists and where it still exists in our world, I'm going to use a definition that comes from the popular Bible teacher, Beth Moore. So ladies, those of you who already have been reading uh, Beth Moore or watching her on a number of videos and such, we're tapping into the familiar for you. Guys who aren't necessarily, uh, have been inoculated to uh, pink lipstick on Bible study, that's her phrase, uh, we're going to borrow a, a little bit of terminology from Beth Moore and we'll understand why some of these ladies are listening to her and learning from her. She defines idolatry this way, and I find this very helpful. Anything we try to put in a place where God belongs is an idol. Anything that we try to put in a place where God belongs becomes an idol in our lives. Let's look at uh, idolatry through the lens of the Bible for a moment. First, we're going to look at idolatry in the past. Where do we see this, this uh, concept arise? Well, we discover it in the very first sin that the Bible talks about. So Genesis chapter 3, we find these words where the enemy of God, the evil one, invades the body of a serpent, begins speaking to the very first woman on earth. She's not even named Eve yet. And he says this to her, You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Genesis 3, verses 4 and 5. The evil one, God's sworn enemy, 
used three tactics to tempt Eve in the Garden of Eden. First, he sold doubt about God. He says, did God really say? Anytime the tempter does that, what he's trying to do is to knock somebody off what they believe that the word of God has already told them. So did God really say? And he begins to sow that doubt. The second tactic that he uses is twisting God's words. So he says, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Anybody who's read the story of Genesis and knows it well knows that that's not what God said. He didn't say you couldn't eat from any of the trees in the garden, but he said you cannot eat the fruit from one tree in the garden. And that tree was not the, the, the tree of knowledge. It was the tree of good and evil, the knowledge of good and evil. Some people still today twist that story to say God is against knowledge. He doesn't want us to know things. But there's one kind of knowledge that God was against. He did not want human beings to have to know and endure the power of evil. Think of this to, to this moment. The number one thing that people wrestle with about God is why is there so much evil in our world? If there is a good God, if there is a powerful God, if there is a sovereign God, if there's an all-knowing God, why is there so much evil? One of the reasons that this shows up in the third chapter of the very first book of the Bible is that even today when people are discovering the, the Bible for the first time and wrestling with who God is for the first time, God wants us to know that there is an enemy. And there is an enemy who is, is sworn to oppose all of the policies, all of the procedures, all of the power of God in this world. And the enemy is bent on getting in the way between you and me enjoying God, knowing God, and serving God with effectiveness. He wants us to know that from the outset because if we bury our heads in the sand and if we say there is no enemy of God, there is no evil one, we are blind to the way that he distorts and the way that he uses things in this world to distract us from becoming fully developed people of God. And that's God's goal. So we, we looked at these first three tactics that he uses there in the garden. Uh, the, the third one is a uh, presentation of half-truth where he says, you will be like God knowing good and evil. That's a good thing to want to be like God, isn't it? But he says you'll be, you, it's a shortcut that he's offering to try and know something, but the only thing that they would discover, having already known good, is now they will know good side by side with evil, and evil will begin to taint so many things in this world. With those three tricks, a human being failed the Beth Moore test. She put the forbidden fruit ahead of trusting God's word and God's instructions for life. She also bought the half-truth, wanting a shortcut to be more like God. So something that is good, wanting to be like God, became an idol in her life. It became an idol when she desired a spiritual experience by following the devil's plan instead of God's plan for personal spiritual development. I've got news for you. That is exactly the scenario that confronts you and me every time there is an opportunity for us to divert from God's plan. There are two plants that are out there in the world. The evil one actually is brilliant in his plan. He has a plan for you. He wants to give you some of what you need but always at the wrong time and in the wrong way. God's plan is to give you everything that you truly need, but only in the right time and in the right way. And therein lies the difficulty. I don't know about you, but I'm impatient. 
as a person. I want things when I want them. I want growth to happen immediately. I want God's blessings today. I want to know the future right now. I don't want to do the one thing that God often asks us to do as part of a spiritual development process. Wait. You know why? A number of you are nodding. You know the same difficulty that I'm describing. Waiting is the hardest thing to do. Because when we have to wait, we are not in control of the time frame. When we have to wait, we have to submit to somebody who is greater than us. When we have to wait, we have to recognize that God is going to do things his way. And we're not in charge. And that's actually a pretty good place to be, where we're not in charge of some things in life. And this is one of those things we cannot be in charge of. The results of Eve's decision not only affected her and then Adam as he joined her with his own uh, deliberate act, but the entire human population of the world has been different ever since that time. Second, we read warnings about idolatry in the Ten Commandments. I don't know if you've noticed this, if you've thought about the Ten Commandments more recently, but uh, the first two commandments address this theme. Uh, Beginning in Exodus 20, verse 3, it says, You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol or an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. The Bible is using that word jealous in the positive sense, not in the negative sense. The negative would be a neurotic jealousy, the kind of thing that uh, is always looking around every corner trying to find something that isn't there, trying to hold on to something that doesn't really belong to them. But there's a positive kind of jealousy. It's the kind of jealousy that God has when he does not want his glory given to something or somebody else that doesn't deserve it. And he doesn't want a piece of wood or stone or anything else in this world worshipped in his place, for he alone is our creator. He alone is the God who loves us and who gave his own son's life uh, for us in, in every possible way. The Ten Commandments were given, to God, given by God to Moses during a period known as the Exodus. The Ten Commandments are often called God's moral law. They are an expression of ten values that are at the heart of what God wants for us and wants us to stay away from. They are foundational for both Jews and for Christians today, and that has generally been accepted by Jews and by Christians for now thousands of years. The first four commandments lead us or teach us how to honor and worship God alone. The final six commandments teach us about how to treat other people. Everything, though, builds on these first two commands. We are warned to put nothing in the place of God, and then we are warned about making idols or images that are worshipped or valued in place of God. The danger is seen in the Beth Moore test. Anything we try to put in a place where God belongs becomes an idol. And then the, the third part of the background is we can trace the impact of idolatry into the exile period. So we read this verse from Jeremiah chapter 2 where God is speaking through Jeremiah to the people of Israel, the remainder of Jerusalem, who are going to go into the land 
of, of Babylon in exile, and Jerusalem will be destroyed. And as part of the warning that all of this is coming, God lays out his case through Jeremiah. And he sums it up with these two points. He says, my people have committed two sins. The first is personal. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water. So God identifies himself this way as a, a spring of living water. That's a very attractive description. Uh, the difference between a spring and what he's going to talk about in a moment as a cistern are tremendously um, different. One is life-giving. One is stuck and unchanging. So the second complaint that he, that he has is, uh, he says, uh, they have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. So think of this. We all know what a spring is. A spring is an underground source of water that bubbles up into some kind of cavity that can hold it. So most of our lakes are depressions in the land with a spring underneath it or several springs underneath it. And the water keeps flowing up and the spring keeps it fresh. So the water is continually moving. However, a cistern is a hole that is either natural or that is dug into rock. And when the rainy day comes, the rain fills that hole in the rock. And when you're desperate and you're out in the desert, that would taste, you know, at least better than death. You can, drink, you can drink it and maybe survive on it. But if you're comparing drinking water from a cistern that's going to sit still with nothing moving in it, where mold is going to grow over time, with a living spring, you would choose the spring water every single time over cistern water. How many of you ever bought spring water from a store? It's, it's a new fascination. I know a few people uh, who have made tremendous amounts of money by getting in the game of finding spring water or something that can be labeled as spring water, bottling up and packaging it so that you and I fork over ridiculous amounts of money for water, right? How many of you ever bought cistern water at the store? <laughs> How many would? Yeah, we got one hand back there, maybe. <laughs> There is always one. I'm glad you're here. <laughs> no, but, but the, the, the illustration that's used here in Scripture is one that's profound. We don't need to create our own illustration. God is saying, I am that spring of water. Every other option that you can use for spiritual sustenance in comparison is like a moldy cistern of water that's been sitting there for who knows how long it will not taste as good, it will not enrich you the same way, and you just might get sick from it. That's the point that he's driving at. Idolatry keeps showing up in the story of the Jews and the other nations. We find that God was judging both Egypt and their gods when he first rescued Israel from the Exodus. The Egyptians had ten gods that they worshipped, and they just happened to correspond with the ten plagues that God brought on the pathway to that exodus. God specifically told the people of Israel that he was giving them the land of Canaan because of the idolatry of the Canaanite people. And before they entered, he gave them a warning that if Israel returned to idol worship and picked up the idols of those nations, eventually God declared that he would take the land from them. Guess what? They did and he did. They returned to the idols, and God eventually allowed the exile. None of this was by accident. All this was foretold. These are the conditions, and they walked right into that mess. The people of Israel got impatient. 
waiting for Moses when he was on the, the mountain, getting the Ten Commandments and instructions from God. And what did they do? They built a golden calf to worship in place of God. Then later on, we read of a series of judges and kings and prophets who at times had to destroy the idols that kept creeping back into the life and the practices of Israel through the centuries. And eventually, the worst of the kings of Israel were so dedicated to idol worship in place of God that that was why God eventually allowed Jerusalem to be destroyed and the people to be carried off captive to another nation. In that moment, God finally turned his back on Israel because of their idolatry. So Jeremiah, who we just read, was the prophet who told Jerusalem about the impending exile to Babylon as part of God's judgment. It wasn't a permanent judgment. It wasn't for all time. It was marked out for 70 years, and God was letting him know he was serious about this idol business. Jerusalem was finally sacked in 586 B.C. The leaders were taken into exile, and Jeremiah gives the, re the reasons they have turned from God, this spring of living water. They've dug their own spiritual cisterns, and they were drinking from them instead. This is an important picture of the impact of idol worship. Turning away from drinking from the spring of living water has consequences in our lives. Digging our own cisterns and drinking water that isn't spiritually fresh or spiritually clean also has negative implications on our lives. So let's come back to the question. Do we have an idol problem today? We have to define it for a moment to say, well, what is an idol? We already noted that Beth Moore's definition is anything we try to put in a place where God belongs. Richard Keyes in his book, The Idol Factory, puts it this way. As soon as our loyalty to anything leads us to disobey God, we are in danger of making it an idol. Three factors emerge from these two definitions side by side. The first is that an idol is anything that takes the place of God. The second is that an idol is anything to which we have a greater loyalty than we do for God. And the third is that an idol is anything that leads us to disobey God or to disregard his instructions. Now put that together with our observation that all the way back in chapter 3 of the Bible, God introduces us to the concept of evil, to the sworn enemy of God as, uh, as he begins to tempt Eve. And we discover something about idols. Idols in and of themselves are nothing. The idols of the ancient nations were, were wood and stone and they were inanimate objects. God wasn't threatened by the person of an idol. He was threatened by what people did with idols, and he was angry over what people did with idols. What are idols? Idols are anything the evil one can use to get between you and God. Anything that the evil one can use. And this is where he's so creative. So we're going to look for a moment at contemporary idols that take God's place, call for loyalty, or lead us to disobey God. The first three go together in a cluster. Money, sex, and power. They, they are the classic three idols of, of our time and, and of our world. Notice all three can be used for good. The love of any of these three, though, can corrupt our lives. The pursuit of them often causes shifts in our loyalty. We can spell it out like this. 
The woman obsessed with money no longer sees herself as a steward of God's resources. Instead, the goal is to have more and more money and to think more highly of herself because of it. The person obsessed with sex sees other people as those to be used for instant gratification. The man obsessed with power uses position or prestige for personal control, not caring who he climbs over or who he destroys in the process of gathering more power and reaching the top spot. We are all familiar with the number of, of books and concepts and movies that all play out or the lives that have been destroyed in the pursuit of, of these three, the, the first three primary idols of contemporary culture. In some ways, these are the original American, American idols. We're tempted to rate or to evaluate people based on the amount of money that they stockpile. So every year, popular magazines carry stories about the richest people in America and how they got there and their lavish lifestyles. The movie Wall Street a few years ago popularized the mantra of those who put money about everything else. Remember that mantra? Greed is good. Yeah, Gordon Gekko says that. You got four Gs. Gordon Gekko, greed is good. The lie that we buy when we embrace that mentality is that having a huge stockpile of money will bring security. And it might for a short while, but it doesn't in the ultimate sense of things. Our visual and celebrity culture oversells sex. So advertising executives have learned a long time ago that putting a pretty girl next to a hot car sells the car. Pretty, good, putting a pretty girl next to almost everything sells whatever it is to some people. And so we are flooded with these images. Am I, am I alone or anybody else ever noticed that? <laughs> I think you have. And what it leads to in our culture is that people are ranked and evaluated based on the shape of their body parts. And that culture is ingrained very, very early in our lives. The lie that we buy is that sex with someone who has the current hot look is somehow better. And people get hooked on this. And we ignore the cost on all sides of this obsession. I don't know about you, but I remember the first time one of the boys in my neighborhood stole his dad's Playboy magazine that he found underneath his dad's mattress. We were about 11 or 12 years old, and we were, we were boys looking at an airbrush symbol of female beauty, which began to set false standards and false promises before our 11-year-old eyes. I don't think I'm saying anything that's all that revolutionary, all that's confessional. Because almost every man that I know has had an experience somewhere like that that started much earlier than mom and dad ever knew. Right? And I'm told every time that I do talk about this concept that there are women who've had their experiences too, that it's not just a male thing. And who often tell me, please, please don't present this just as a male problem. But it is a huge male problem in, in our day and almost none of us are immune to it or exempt from it. The false promise is that there is someone who looks like this who is just waiting to meet all of your needs where you don't have to try, you don't have to build a relationship if you just adopt the Playboy lifestyle or whatever the current label is for it. 
And in the name of sexual liberation, Hugh Hefner introduced millions of men and women to visual and mental bondage to idols of the mind that rob many of the full enjoyment of a, of a sexuality that God intended to be good and to be celebrated and to be clean. In every realm of society this year, we have seen abuses of power being confronted. Sometimes it involves a combination of power and money. Sometimes it involves a combination of power and sex. We have seen this from movie executives, government leaders, business leaders, and even in the upper echelons of the church, where pastors and priests have been exposed for not rooting out the idols of their lives, and rather allowing the idols of their lives to consume them and ultimately get in the way of whatever God's plan was in the beginning. Idols are things that we allow to define our identity. They are things that define your identity. Now, some of those are on this next list. They are our things or our possessions on the outside of that list. Uh, Tim Keller states in his book, Gospel and Life, which many of us are using in our small group study, an idol is the thing you get your identity from if you don't get your identity from God. This week I read about a man who went to a restaurant where they had a valet service. And when the dinner engagement ended, he gave his valet card to the attendant. And in a moment, this sleek, black, really hot, really expensive car pulled up to the curb. And the attendant got out and said, is this you? There's something really illustrative about that question. Is this you? As if to say, are you that thing? Are you defined by the car that you own? And man, if you have a more expensive one and you've got one that's more sleek and cooler, does that mean that's you? That you're more sleek and you're cooler based on what you own? And when we buy into that, this becomes the moment when our possessions define us. These moments tend to evaluate, uh, tempt us to evaluate or judge ourselves or other people based on the machine they drive or the house they live in or the neighborhood where their address resides. Rather than seeing their infinite worth as image bearers of God who deeply matter to him and a status which transforms everything else in the way we look at life. Martin Luther, the 16th century pastor and theologian, the one who launched the, the Reformation, made this statement. Under every behavioral sin is the sin of idolatry. And under every act of idolatry is a disbelief in the gospel. Let me re repeat that. For those of you who are tracking with the Living the Gospel small group series, you're going to wrestle with that particular definition of it this week. Under every behavioral sin is the sin of idolatry. And under every act of idolatry is a disbelief in the gospel. So what is the area of disbelief? It's the idea that we define ourselves, that, that things define us, instead of having our relationship with the living God define who we are and establish our worth. It's the idea that serving and loving God isn't enough if we don't have everything that this world can possibly offer. Then there's another one uh, on this side, it says comfort. 
Personal comfort becomes an idol when following God's commands takes us out of our comfort zone. And we're tempted to say in those moments, I don't think I believe in a God who would ask me to sacrifice this. I don't think I believe in a God who would ask me to give up that. My God wants the best for me in all situations. My God wants me to prosper in all situations. My God wants me to shoot for my dream, whatever it is, no matter how outrageous it is. And if God is good, he's going to give me every aspect of my dream. That's a different God than the God we encounter in the scriptures who says, I have a mission for you. And sometimes that mission is going to send you into a very safe place where you can live out your life and pursue your dreams. Sometimes that mission is going to send you into a more dangerous place. And there are some Christians around the world who live in very dangerous places where standing up for their faith and simply living the kind of life that you want to live marks them in a way that is going to lead to some kind of punishment or ostracism or worse. When we say, I don't think I believe in a God who would ever ask me to sacrifice, we create our own God. And I think there are many, a great many, cultural Christians in our world, in our country, who like Jesus, but who are really in love with the comfort zone that they're in right now. Question. Does that ever apply to you or me? Would I give up my comfort zone if God called me to do something a little more demanding? Would you? And then there are two more of these idols, contemporary idols that we deal with. They kind of go together, vanity and fame. Vanity is the love of how we see ourselves. It's akin to pride, or perhaps another word for pride. Fame is the obsession with how other people see us. Sometimes we can carefully craft uh, the, the, the narrative of our lives so that our fame grows and people have a larger-than-life view of who we really are. It's fascinating to read in the Gospels how Jesus rejected the, the pursuit of vanity or fame when he went through the temptation by the devil in the desert. The evil one says to him, bow down and worship me and I will give you all of these kingdoms. What he was saying to Jesus in effect was, I'll give you the easy path. I'll turn all this over to you. You don't have to go to the cross. You don't have to obey God the Father. You don't have to wait. I'll give it to you now. But the cost, the cost was what Jesus would have to sacrifice. His relationship with the Father. His character. And the ability to save us. And Jesus instead chose the route of character. So here's the big idea for this morning that we've been working toward. Removing idols from our lives is a matter of loving Jesus so much more than anything else that we root out everything that usurps his place. Removing idols from our lives is a matter of first loving Jesus so much more than anything else that we root out those things that become idols and usurp his place. Now, we live in a world where all of these things exist. There will always be money, sex, and power that are part of human life. There will always be things that we collect. There will be fame that some people accrue. There will be vanity that we're tempted to embrace and apply to ourselves. And hopefully there will be many, many days, months, weeks, years, eras of comfort in our lives because we serve a good God. But any one of those things can become idols. 
The challenge is, if they have become idols and they're in the way of God or in the place of God, what does God want us to do with them? So, with the second passage that we read, there are three keys to defeating our idols in life. Here's the first one. Set your hearts on Christ. So, Colossians 3.1 begins with this thought. Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. What the Bible is telling us to do here is to make Jesus the center of your affection, not our love for all of these American idols. And when we love Jesus so much and our affections are set on him, we can actually exist with these things but put them in their place where they are tools for us but not idols. And if we don't get that balance right, they become tools for the evil one to use in our lives in order to make them idols that get in the way of God and that distract us from the plan that God really has for our lives. You see why this is so important? It's so important that we talk about idolatry here in this era because it's all around us. Here's the second strategy that he has. Set your minds on Christ. So set your hearts on Christ. Love him. Set your minds on Christ. So verse 2 says, set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died. And your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. The heart will follow your mind when you cultivate a life of the mind and when we understand truth. And the picture that's given here is that a Christian has already participated in the death of Christ. And so, therefore, we have died to the old way of life and we're given the opportunity to live a new life but it takes some intentionality to fully embrace that and live that out. We have to put to death the things that become idols so that we can truly live. But the key to putting them to death is to tap into the love of Christ first. And that gives us the strength to recognize that he is our all in all. The challenge is to learn to dwell on eternal things rather than temporal things. You and I are destined for so much more, but it takes faith to believe that. And then to seek to live a hidden life. He says that your lives are hidden with Christ in God. The hidden life is that, that life that you cultivate with God that not everybody else sees, but it's the life that, that gives energy, gives joy, gives focus, gives meaning to every day. The more that you spend time with God or I spend time with God on a regular basis, he is calling you to do this more. He is calling me to do this more. He is calling us to live this way and not to live in our own strength. The danger is that we as Christians can live every single day in our own strength, operating on the memories of what God has done rather than tapping into the, da the daily living spring that God wants to provide, but that he only gives us one day at a time. That's why the devotional life of the mind and the heart of a Christian is so vital. It's not just about what we believe intellectually. It's not just about the decision we made years ago when somebody first presented the gospel. It's about how we live it out every day, not out of guilt, but out of opportunity to go to a richer and deeper place with God. And then the last challenge is to let your idols die. So he says, Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Here in Colossians 3.5, Paul tells us that our contemporary obsessions really are idols. All of these things, he says, which are idolatry. 
So, the Bible is telling us that idolatry is not just a thing of the past. It is whatever the evil one can use to get between us and God and keep us from being fully effective, the kind of people that he longs to bless daily. The deeper, more satisfying life of a Christian only comes when we let our idols die. And when we even go beyond that, we actively put them to death. And the key to putting idols to death is loving Jesus more. Make sense? We need to talk more about idolatry. I apologize to you that we have not talked about idolatry here enough. In trying to be safe, we've ignored something really important. And I'm convinced of that today. I'm convicted about that. I would like to do something right here at the end of our service. And uh, in a moment, we're going to invite somebody up here who I believe loves Jesus deeply, and that's uh, Dennis and Valerie Keith, both of them. But before we do that, um, I'm going to wait till they get in the room. We want to show you a little slideshow that we put together in appreciation of Dennis. So if you guys would roll that. doesn't 